Hello, my name's John Dennis. It's Wednesday the 27th of January. On Friday, it's Tony Blair's turn, but today his former Attorney General Lord Goldsmith gives evidence to the Chilcot inquiry into the Iraq war. Also today, Britain is out of recession. Just... Just 0.1% growth, and we know that from past experience that that could be revised either way. We hear from Haiti two weeks after the earthquake, as John Travolta flies in with a plane load of Scientologists. These are people uh, in yellow t-shirts who seek out traumatised victims from the earthquake here, which is not difficult to to do, um, and they then try to, to heal them. In France, MPs say Muslim women shouldn't be allowed to use public services if they wear the full veil. The main reason is that, that it is so stark for French people to have to have such a such a, an obvious statement of religion. It's just not something that they are particularly comfortable with. And inside the secret vaults where the super-rich store their wine. Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk First, our top story. The former Attorney General, Lord Goldsmith, gives evidence to the Chilcot inquiry into the Iraq war today. He won't have been helped by Sir Michael Wood, who was top legal adviser at the Foreign Office, and his deputy Elizabeth Wilmhurst. They told the inquiry yesterday that the former Foreign Secretary Jack Straw ignored their warnings that, without a second UN resolution, an invasion of Iraq would be illegal under international law. Andrew Sparrow's been live blogging from the Chilcot Inquiry and he's in our Westminster office. Well, the key question is why he changed his mind on the issue of whether going to war would be uh, legal. Because what we learned yesterday was that in January 2003, he sent a draft copy of his legal advice to Downing Street. And at that stage, he was saying it's going to be illegal to go to war unless you have a second resolution. By March the 7th, he had written, he had um, sort of got off one side of the fence and was sitting slap bang on the middle of the fence and was saying you could probably go to war it would you could probably make a reasonable case for war without a second resolution but it would be a bit iffy uh, within 10 days he was saying uh, it's all fine and dandy no need to worry about that second resolution so within a two-month period he has performed a, a complete u-turn on the issue of the legality of the war and uh, we haven't had a particularly uh, convincing explanation as to why he's done that What have we learned so far from the Chilcot inquiry about the government's attitude towards the legality of invading Iraq? Well, there's been um, the legality has been a a key issue uh, for people who um, feel strongly about the war. But until yesterday, it had only come up in a very roundabout way. The the, the inquiry had quite deliberately decided not to to address this till till their hearings towards the end of January. Um, what we learnt yesterday, we got a, got a, a, a ton of documents, about sort of 80 pages of, of, of memos and uh, internal papers, mostly from the Foreign Office lawyers. And this, sh- uh, we only it already been a, a matter of public knowledge that, that, that there were uh, lawyers in the government, uh, as well as the, the, the very many lawyers outside the government who, who thought the war was illegal. What this did, I think, was clarify for us quite how much opposition there was 
amongst the civil servants to the war. And it also clarified, we learned a lot about Jack Straw's approach to this, which was, I kind of believe in international law, but it's all a bit vague, isn't it? Why should I necessarily take what you're saying? Because lawyers sort of often disagree. And Elizabeth Wilmhurst, who resigned over the war, um, thought it was wrong that Goldsmith was, wasn't asked for his view until very, very late in the day. Yes, yeah, she made a, a point which has, I think, been made by other witnesses. She felt he should have been asked to, to give a view much earlier in the, in the process so that the legal advice could inform policy before it got to the stage where she pretty much said she felt it was too late for him to do anything other than, than, than say yes. Andrew Sparrow. And there's full coverage today at guardian.co.uk slash politics. France has taken a step towards banning Muslim women from wearing the niqab, the full veil. A committee of 32 MPs from across the political spectrum has produced a report for Parliament that recommends stopping anyone using public services who insists on covering their face. Lizzie Davis is in Paris. Well, there are multiple strands to what they've recommended, but the two key things to to remember are that, first of all, they want to pass a largely symbolic non-binding parliamentary resolution sometime before the summer, which is a kind of a quite a new mechanism in France, which would state that France says no to the burqa, which is written in the report. Then the next step would be to make legal changes to the way that France caters for women um, who choose to cover their faces with the full veil. Um, And the way that they want to do this is by saying that um, under the principle of of laïcité, of France's secular approach, uh, these women should not be allowed into public facilities um, and and they wouldn't be allowed public services once they're in there. So we're talking about hospitals, the entrances of schools, because of course educational facilities are already off bounds for women who even wear headscarves. So the entrances of schools, public transport, post offices, any kind of realm of the state. So it's quite far ranging, but it's not a full ban, which is what a lot of people wanted. There are 5 million Muslims in France, but according to the French Interior Ministry, there are fewer than 2,000 women wearing the full veil. So why is so much time and energy being spent on this? Well, that's the question being asked by many people. It is indeed a minority practice. There are far fewer women who wear full veils than than in Britain, for example. One of the things to 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 realize is that we uh, we come at this at a completely different point of view from from the French. Um, so while it may seem very shocking for many people in Britain that the French are pursuing what seems like such a minority kind of activity, and we have to remember that those figures are in themselves a complete uh, approximation. We don't really have much of an idea of how many people there are. Um, but but the main reason is that, that it is so stark for French people to have to have, have such a such a an obvious statement of religion. It's just not something that they are particularly comfortable with. Um, but then again, there are many people who feel that in the France of Nicolas Sarkozy, uh, Muslims are being stigmatised, uh, and and that is a, a source of great concern, especially as Sarkozy embarks and continues on a debate about national identity, which many people feel has descended into a kind of rabble-rousing uh, uh, argument which is focused on, on, on Muslims. Lizzie Davis. My name's John Dennis. You're listening to Guardian Daily.
Britain's economy grew by 0.1% in the fourth quarter of 2009, bringing to an end the UK's deepest recession since the 1930s. The Chancellor, Alistair Darling, says we are on a path to recovery. But Heather Stewart, the Observer's economics editor, says 0.1% isn't really very impressive. It isn't, and it's a lot worse than a lot of the analysts, the economists and and the experts and so on were expecting. Just 0.1% growth, and we know that from past experience that that could be revised either way. This is based on some of the data. It's just the first take. So actually, you know, it suggests that the recovery we were really hoping for to see strongly in the fourth quarter has really not materialised. And 0.1% despite this huge injection of public spending from the government. Indeed. um, We've had £200 billion worth of quantitative easing from the Bank of England. Um, We've had a, a £20 billion fiscal stimulus package from the government, including the VAT cut. A lot of that is due to run out in the coming months. So the real worry is we've thrown everything but the kitchen sink at this economy and all we've managed to achieve is is a paltry 0.1% growth. And the worrying thing is where that leaves us for the next six to nine months. And what factors will now determine whether economic growth will pick up or indeed continue? Well, it partly depends on what happens in the rest of the world, because one of the few bright spots for the UK economy is that we have had quite a strong depreciation in the pound. And in theory, that ought to help some of our exporters to to sell more goods to other parts of the world. And and that should be a strong source of growth at a time when a lot of consumers are so heavily indebted, they can't spend much, the government's heavily indebted, and so on. But that depends on recovery continuing in other parts of the world and at the moment that looks very uncertain. And meanwhile Heather, Mervyn King, the Bank of England governor, um, has said that he supports Barack Obama's uh, reforms Mm. of the banking system in America. Now that's not the view of the Treasury is it? certainly isn't. And the Treasury has worked quite hard to try and make its view sound as, as, as similar as President Obama's as possible. But actually, the measures that they've uh, concretely announced so far are much more modest than anything that, that Obama seems to be um, suggesting. Mervyn King has made clear um, over several months now that, that he favours something quite radical, something akin to a, a what was called the Glass-Steagall legislation in the States, which um, was a Great Depression era rule, which separated sort of risky casino banking, um, investment type banking from ordinary deposit taking retail banks. And and the Treasury has repeatedly suggested this is much too radical. It doesn't see it as the solution. And of course, now Obama has put something like this back on the table that the debate is very much live again here. And will it be live in Davos, where world leaders and business leaders are gathering for the World Economic Forum? I think it will be one of a lot of pressing issues they'll be trying to deal with. There's this problem of what to do about banks that are, as we say too big to fail um, it has been one of the, the huge sort of regulatory um, hurdles that the credit crunch has thrown up. It was after Lehman Brothers collapsed, the chaos that that created made governments all over the world realise that, that we simply can't let this happen again. And, 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 you know, the question is what you do about that. And there's one simple answer, which is Obama's answer and also Mervyn King's is you simply don't let banks get that big and the UK government's approach is rather different it's well you know you 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 get them to tell you how they would wind themselves down if they collapsed you get them to hold more capital it's it's very much nuanced and this is absolutely one of the, the burning regulatory issues and it will be very much on people's minds in Davos I'm sure. Heather Stewart. It's now more than two weeks since a seven magnitude earthquake killed an estimated 200,000 people in Haiti. 
The Haitian Prime Minister, Jean-Max Bellarive, insists Haiti's government can lead the rebuilding effort. But the picture on the ground is one of chaos and desperation, as Rory Carroll reports from Port-au-Prince. It's grim. There are still uh, about three million people in need of shelter, food and water. It's not quite as bad or catastrophic as it was two weeks ago. Um, But if you drive around uh, neighbourhoods here, you still see some dead bodies trapped under rubble. You still see people clamouring for food. um, And just uh, yesterday, there was a small riot in front of the National Palace uh, where there are groups of people where the Uruguayan peacekeepers lost control when they're trying to distribute food and so on. So you see a lot of uh, impatience with this. So And bottlenecks in the aid effort. um, And especially now, what's becoming a big problem is a shortage of tents. Um, because there's so many people, hundreds of thousands have been left homeless um, and they're squatting in uh, very squalid conditions of improvised shelters using sheets or whatever they can, or tablecloths uh, to, to try to sleep under. Um, and so there is this dire need for hundreds of thousands of tents which just simply haven't arrived yet. Now, Rory, you spoke to the parents of one girl who was killed for allegedly looting. I mean, how, how bad is the problem of looting now and what, what's the security situation like? The looting is very localised. It's most of the very dramatic pictures and sounds that we from the looting that um, are all localised in a couple of blocks in downtown where it's chaos, really. It's, it's kind of, it looks like Mad Max uh, territory where there are uh, people scrambling and jostling and occasionally using machetes uh, as they fight over very dwindling supplies of whatever it is in shops. In the last what, time I was there yesterday, uh, people were fighting over some cooking oil, some runners, and I even saw some people jostling over umbrellas. So, um, it's but it is very localised. Um, the rest of the city is remarkably calm given the circumstances. Um, and frankly, I think it's a testament to the incredible stoicism of the Haitian people that there hasn't been more looting. And uh, meanwhile, Rory, the Hollywood actor John Travolta has arrived with a load of Scientology ministers. What's going on there? A very good question. Uh, yes, he flew in. He's, he's a pilot. Uh, so he flew in himself in his own personal Boeing 707 uh, with his wife, Kelly Preston, uh, in the cockpit. And he's brought in uh, about six tons worth of uh, food rations, uh, some medical supplies, and yes, a whole plane load of Scientology volunteer ministers. Um, and the certainly the uh, aid workers here are grateful for any sort of supplies they can get, so they're they're thankful for the medical uh, uh, supplies and food. Uh, however, there's lots of uh, skepticism um, verging on on, on scorn uh, for the volunteer ministers. These are people uh, for, in yellow t-shirts uh, who seek out traumatized victims from the earthquake here, which is not difficult to to do, um, and they then try to to heal them um, because according to the Scientologists. And when there's a trauma, your nervous system needs to be reconnected. And the way to do that is by a type of assist, is what they call it, and where you, whereby you touch people through their clothing until they feel better. And basically, it's a type of massage. Um, now, some of the uh, people you see here are pretty sceptical about it, and, and also um, some medical doctors here uh, are just snorting and say, well, I've never seen gangrene cured by touching. Rory Carroll in Port-au-Prince. Well, the Guardian photographer David Levine has just returned from the Haitian capital and he's made a film about the survivors of the catastrophe. It's quite difficult to watch at times and in a way it brings back home to me some of the things that I experienced in a way that I haven't been able to uh, uh, think about since I came back. You're, you're so busy when you're there doing it and then when you get back you're so busy trying to get all the, the material together. So it's in fact quite 
um, moving for me to watch it was it's the first time I can sit back and think about some of the things I saw. David Levine, and you can watch his film at guardian.co.uk slash video. Some of the most valuable bottles of wine in the country, owned by some of the wealthiest people in the world, are stored underneath the Wiltshire countryside. The Guardian Stephen Morris reports from Eastleys Mine near Corsham. We've just walked down 157 pretty rickety steps into an old stone mine that's been turned into a wine lover's paradise. This is Corsham Cellars in Wiltshire, where the rich and famous lay down their fine wine. Everywhere you turn, the great names of the wine world ping out at you. Lafitte, Latour, Krug. There are some five million bottles of wine here, some worth tens of thousands of pounds each. And it's boom times in the wine world. Even during the recession, the wealthy have continued to invest in wine. And with 2009 promising to be a great vintage, this place is going to get even busier. Back upstairs, Operations Director Laurie Greer explains why this old mine is an ideal place for one of the world's best wine cellars. The actual mine itself is approximately a million square foot and is about a hundred foot below the surface. What makes this so unique is from a fine wine point of view, you need a constant temperature. The temperature downstairs is about 13 degrees, which is about as perfect as you can get. If you get a bottle of wine and the wine is in what we call the neck of the bottle, because there's the neck and then there's the shoulders and then there's the bulk of the bottle, if it's in the neck of the bottle, then that will command a much higher price than if it's down into the shoulder. It can, in some cases, it can be as much inexpensive bottles as a thousand a thousand pound a bottle that can knock off knock off the price so again humidity is right but also of course you can't have it too damp because if you if, if you have the humidity too high then it begins to affect the label and it begins to affect the case obviously you can't name any of your customers but yeah. what, what sort of people are we talking about you've got you know joe blogs in the high street to very high celebrities store their wines down there what Footballers, football managers, racehorses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A very, very wide spectrum of, of recliners is, is based down here. Got any of your wine down there? I, I, I tend to drink it rather, <laughs> rather than store it. Stephen Morris reporting. Guardian Daily was produced today by Phil Maynard and Tim Maybe. I'm John Dennis. Thank you for listening.